Why don't we pray together one more time? Father, we just look to you. We need help. Uh, we want to learn from your word. I pray you'd fill us with your spirit and give clarity and help. Um, we know that the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. So we're asking that you would work in our hearts and make your word uh, come alive to us. Which has this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You're going to open up to Revelation. going to do the, the last letter here. Revelation chapter 3. And I'm going to try and keep it short for the business meeting here after this brief. Um, so I'm just going to be looking for Andy to signal me here <laughs> if I go too long. Okay. So we're going to read here the last letter to the church in Laodicea. This is Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you or vomit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich and have prospered and need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered, and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so just super short introduction here. We're to the end of these this letter, and the main theme, kind of the overarching theme that we've been talking about in Revelation is really found in the title, the revealing or the revelation of Jesus. And so when you hear the word revelation, we talk about wanting not to think of more of the um, figurative parts or the uh, imagery, the vivid imagery, and making something secondary the main thing. For example, a lot of times we talk about revelation in terms of amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, all focusing around when is this millennium, this thousand years that revelation talks about. When in reality, that's not the main message of revelation. And so we can unconsciously or even subconsciously in naming the different positions on revelation focus on secondary things rather than the primary thing, which is really found in the name of the book, the revelation of Jesus or the revealing of Jesus. Jesus is the center of the book of Revelation from the beginning to the end, and it starts in chapter 1 with his vision of Jesus. And then throughout the letters in chapter 2 and 3, each one starts with a picture of Christ to the to the church. And it's referencing that first vision from chapter 1, but then it talks about a specific piece of Jesus focus, focusing on that, to each church and what they need to hear. And so as we have gone through and as we continue to go through the book of Revelation, we always want to ask the question, where's Christ and what does this teach me about Christ and how does that affect my life? Because if we do that, then all, not only these sections, but when we get to the more imaginative, uh, vivid descriptions, they'll make more sense. 
because even when there's dragons or uh, prostitutes, they're always contrasting Jesus, and they're always put together uh, and juxtaposed with Christ. And so why is this here? We always need to know how is it pointing to Jesus or how is it contrasting Jesus. So that is just a 30-second or one-minute overview, but now to this particular letter, the last letter, the church in Laodicea. So first, let's look at that picture of Christ here in this particular letter. So this is how Christ is described. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So this is the description of Christ, who's the one who gave John these letters to send to the churches. And here's how he's, Christ is described. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. To be really brief on this, basically I think that these two things are saying the same thing twice. The amen is the Hebrew word for true. And people would say it at the end like truly. Um, And so I think it's repeated here for Gentiles and, and maybe people who weren't as familiar with Hebrew. The faithful and true witness is the second way to say the exact same thing. That what Christ says is true. That his promises are certain. Um, he's a faithful and true witness. He says what's true. You could also think about it like a judge as well. A judge should be a faithful and true witness. He judges faithfully. He's a ruler. Christ is the ruler. Uh, We know that from other verses here, like, for example, Revelation 19.11. gets kind of both these pieces across here. I'll read this to you. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, I saw a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. So you can see how you would want to judge. There it connects this faithful and and true witness to being a judge. You want a judge that's faithful and true, who says what's true and does what's true and can discern the difference. A similar verse here from Revelation 21. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are faithful and true. So, what he says, he does. And, you know, when we say a prayer and then someone says amen at the end, or we say amen, we're saying, that's true. Let it, you know, let it be so. And so, that connects to the second piece. Um, the faithful and true, the words of the amen, are connected to the second piece of the description of Christ. The beginning of God's creation is the way that ESV says it. There's a play on words here, and it doesn't come across perfectly in English, but I'll try and get it across here to you, that when it says the beginning of God's creation, it does not mean that Jesus was the first created being. That's one false thing that uh, some uh, sects take out of this. Jesus is not created, and we know that from several other verses. What's going on here is really a play on words, and I'll read you another translation here. This is uh, the NIV. It says, the ruler of God's creation. Now, the word first can also be, is the same word for ruler. And so that's why they translate it beginning. It could also be translated the ruler of God's creation. And as we've talked about many times, a lot of times Jesus is contrasted with the emperor in this book, in in Revelation, the emperor in Rome. And And the Roman emperor called himself the princeps, which just meant the first. He just called himself the first. And so... This is, one, a contrast of Jesus with the emperor here, but also 
that the idea of the first is the ruler. Um, Jesus is the ruler of the world. Jesus is the ruler of God's creation. And that's what uh, he's getting across here. And so there's there's a play on words that doesn't really come across in English very well because if you translate it, the beginning of God's creation, that doesn't quite get it. But if you translate ruler, you kind of miss that first piece. And so it's just a difficulty here. But just just know that. Now, that's kind of what he describes himself, Christ describes himself as. And now that leads to this question uh, for this church and then also for us. Because why is it Christ saying this to this particular church? He wants them to know that his words are faithful and true and that he's the ruler of, of the world. Uh, and that means of them as well. And it leads to a question here for them and for us. And I'll ask you the question. Do you want a faithful witness? And do you want a Lord or a ruler? Because the reality is, a lot of people don't, right? And this church, do they? And do we? Do I? Each one of us, like Lance said, is going to stand before it as an individual. Because it's not really a light thing that Jesus is the faithful and true witness. And it's not a light thing that he's, not only that, he's the, he has authority when he speaks. He actually knows. He is the ruler of all creation. Just think about what this means if you say, yeah, I want somebody who will tell me the truth, who what they say is true and it's going to happen. But what if that's a correction? What if what he says is hard to hear? Revelation 3.19, think about it this way. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Do you want a faithful witness who's faithful to point out your faults and your failings? That's harder. If you say, yes, I want a faithful witness, yes, I want God to be my Lord, that means difficulty. That means we're actually going to submit to Him. That means we don't actually get to run our own life. God does, because He's God. This word for reprove is the same word kind of expose. For expose. I'll give you an example where the same word's translated differently. In Ephesians 5, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So this idea of reproof or reproving is exposing. Exposing the sin or exposing the darkness that's already there. And both these things really come back to a question that really kind of contradicts our culture. And that is, which do you want more, comfort or maturity? Which do you value more? Because the reality is that they they don't go together. <laughs> that the Bible is very clear that if you're going to mature and you're going to grow, that's not going to be the most comfortable path. And if you want comfort more than you want maturity, then you really don't want a faithful and true witness, right? You don't really want to hear your faults. If you want comfort more than you want uh, this relationship with God, then you don't really want God to run your life. Because what if God runs your life like he did Job's? What if God gives you hard things? What if God wants to use you in the world and the way he uses you is actually putting you in a really difficult situation to be a light there? Well, if you want comfort more than you want a Lord and a faithful and true witness, then you don't want, you don't want a relationship with God. 
Hebrews 12:11 says, "For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it." That we have a real God that we deal with, and here's the scary part: He'll really deal with us. <laughs> he's not going to let us go, and that means He's going to expose our faults and our failures, and that means He's going to speak truth to us, and that means there's going to be hard things. He wants maturity for us. That means we might not always be in the most comfortable situation because He actually cares about us. He cares about our relationship with Him, about our character. And so if we value comfort more than maturity, then what we're saying is we don't really want the trials that will lead us to grow, to grow closer to Christ, to grow more like Christ. Because training is hard. Training is hard. Exposing our faults hurts. Being corrected is not pleasant in the moment, yet, if this is what we really value, then we say, yeah, I want a faithful and true witness. I really want to know God, even if He's exposing things about me that I, that are hard to hear. Is, at least I can, can trust that He's true and He's faithful. And I really want Him to be my Lord. So that's the question really here for them. I think that's one of the reasons that He's described this way, but it's also a question for us just to ask ourselves those questions. And it may not even be something you might know the right answer, right? The right answer is, I really want to know God, even if, it, even if it's hard. But what happens when you actually get into a trial? What happens when things actually do get hard? Do you start to kind of feel like, man, maybe, maybe I don't. <laughs> maybe I don't want that. And so, even subconsciously or or in the things we say or the way we act, we don't want we want to keep this in our, in the front of our mind that we have a faithful and true witness, a Lord that runs our life and and we want maturity more than we want comfort. So then now let's look at this particular correction to this particular church and then see how we can apply that to our life. I know your works, you're neither hot or cold. This is verse fifteen. Would that you were either hot or either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will vomit you or spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I, repro- I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So here's the correction here that he knows them. He knows who they are. He knows what's going on. He knows their particular works. And he says about them a faithful and true word, and it's not pleasant. It's that he's tried them and found them wanting. And this relates to really the background here. Maybe of all the letters we look through, this particular letter relates most to the first century context. There's a lot of references, it seems like, here to the, to the culture of Laodicea. And I'll give you a couple examples here. Uh, Laodicea was a place that was very self-sufficient and very proud of it. Uh, when there was an earthquake uh, and the emperor was giving out funds to rebuild, Laodicea refused that money because they'd rather rebuild it on their own dime. So you can imagine today, I mean, that'd be pretty much unheard of here in America if some there was an earthquake and some city was like, the government was like, hey, we'll give you millions and millions to rebuild. And they're like, no way, we're not taking that. <laughs> that'd be quite a radical thing. That would say a lot about a city if a city said, no, we're going to rebuild on our own. We've got, we, we've got the money. We, we can take care of ourselves. We don't want that. Um, and that's what they did. And we have a record of that. 
So that kind of gives you a feel for the culture uh, in this city. As well as, um, but there was one area that is historically noted they didn't really weren't self-sufficient, and that was their water. So I'll give you this quote here. Uh, it's interesting that we do have a historical record that mentions their water being bad. It says, their water was more drinkable than that of the Hierapolis, uh, and it, but it was full of sediment. So they're saying this water is it's, it's drinkable. <laughs> it's not great. Um, and so I'll give you, I'm going to read you a quote here from Keener, uh, one of the commentators. Laodicea lacked its own water supply, having no direct access to cold water of the mountains or to the hot water of the nearby springs to the north. So Laodicea, you would want either hot or cold. And there was hot springs. That was good. Uh, useful. Hot water is useful. There was cold water in the mountains, but they were far from each, so they could they could build an aqueduct for either one, but by the time it got there, it was lukewarm. And so it seems that this is really a reference to what's going on there. He's making this parallel between their what's really going on physically, but also to them spiritually. Not only that, they had a school for medicine, and they sold salve for people's eyes, and they had a thriving textile industry that made uh, black that was made black wool cloth um, and like many of the other cities we've already talked about there's you know idol worship and there's temples as well so how does that relate to this particular correction well you see that it directly relates that Jesus is playing off of this and exposing their spiritual state using their physical surroundings okay now, given that historical context, a lot of times the way we read this section is that hot is good and cold is bad. That hot means like zealous. And he, what he's saying is, I would rather you be zealous or just be totally uh, rejecting me, but you're not either one. You're kind of halfway in the middle. And it's true from 3.19, we know they weren't zealous. Be zealous and repent, he tells them. Okay. I'm going to try and do this briefly, but quickly. It seems like from the context, what it's actually saying is he wants them to be useful. And hot water would be useful, and cold water would be useful. But the lukewarm water is not useful. You're either going to have to let it sit in the shade and separate, and the sediment fall to the bottom, and, it cool, and it'll cool off um, as, it, as it kind of separates there. Let the bad water fall to the bottom. Or you heat it up and boil it, and then that would be a way to make it useful. But it's not useful in the state it's in. I think that's what Jesus is saying. And so he's not saying hot is good and cold is bad. He's just saying you're lacking. You're not useful. The idea, though, that God would rather us be hot or cold and not lukewarm in terms of zeal is also true. Although I don't think that this particular verse is saying that specific thing here. Um, but it's definitely a true statement from, from the Bible. Um, and I think it's saying that, but more in a general way than, than the way we, we would read it here. But I'll give you an example of another verse that does say that exact thing. So it's not that that's an untrue statement. Uh, here's Jeremiah 3, 6 through 11. And this does teach that God would rather us be hot or cold in terms of our zeal um, and not lukewarm. So the background here in Jeremiah 3 is that... Um, I'll, just, I'll just read it to you first. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel, how she went up on every, on every high hill and under every green tree, and there she played the whore? And I thought, after she has done this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. 
She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless faithless one Israel, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore in terms of idolatry there. But she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense declared the Lord. And the Lord said to me, this, listen to this, this is really the verse that I want you to get. Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. So actually, Jesus, um, Jesus is saying something here to this church that's similar to this message in in Jeremiah that it is true that God would rather you be hot in terms of your zeal or cold because that's what he says about these two kingdoms. One was still going through all the motions of sacrificing. They were still sacrificing in the temple. But he said it was actually better that the other, that the northern kingdom just totally rejected. He said that's better. That's more faithful because the other one is, is pretending, pretending like God matters when he doesn't to them, that it's just pretense. And so if you think about it, it comes back to this, that God loves us. God cares about us. And if we're in the middle kind of pretending like God matters, we can kind of fool ourselves into thinking we're right, like this church. Thinking, yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm right. I think I'm good. And then we're only coming in pretense. But God said it'd be better that you, that you have, you're following me with your full heart. Or that you reject me and you're, in that sense, cold. Even though that's not particularly what it's saying here. But the person that rejects God on the outside, it looks like they're worse off than the person who comes to church and is kind of half-hearted and just there in pretense. But the difference is, the person who rejects God knows, I'm not right with God. And the person who kind of is there in pretense, they can fool themselves. And so if God loves us, He'd rather us know Right? He'd rather us know where we are so that we can repent and return to him, which is his ultimate goal. That, that's what he says. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. So that was all just to kind of explain this particular verse that sometimes is misunderstood, although I think it's fine. What Many times how we apply it is a, is a true statement. Uh, it, it is true that God would rather us be zealous or just totally reject him um, and not pretend to be in the middle somewhere. And so that's what he's really correcting them on because they're there in pretense. Um, they say they're rich and they've prospered, but they're not spiritually. And so this leads to the next point. How can we apply this to our lives? Well, one, it's kind of a warning about taking on our culture's values without reflecting re, uh, reflecting on them from what the Bible says because it seems really that this is a reflection of their culture there in Laodicea, this this culture of self-sufficiency, of being proud of being self-sufficient. And they that's what the, the corrections are about. They say they're rich and have prospered. And they had a thriving banking industry there, so they may have been prosperous physically. But they actually were spiritually poor. They said, I need nothing not realizing that they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now that's spiritually, right? They weren't people thinking, it's not like the emperor that has no clothes, you know, where he's walking around and he thinks he's got clothes on, but he doesn't. This is obviously spiritual, right? They weren't literally walking around naked and blind and confused about that. 
they were spiritually naked and blind. And it's a good warning about false assurance um, that we, we can deceive ourselves. And that's why we need a faithful and true witness, right? We need somebody from the outside who really knows, who we can really submit to. Matthew seven nineteen through 23 gives the same kind of warning. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name or do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So that's a scary thought, isn't it? It's scary to think you're clothed, think you're rich, think uh, you're not blind uh, when you are. And so it's a warning. It's a warning, and it's a something that we need to take urgently, that we need Jesus. We need Christ to be in our lives. We need to listen to his correction. We need someone who's a faithful and true witness, the ruler, uh, who we can listen to. And we want to receive that. And so that really leads into the exhortation here. Uh, Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Basically, they think they're rich, but not they're not rich in the important things. Forgiveness before God, purity, spiritual sight, and all these things come from Jesus. He's saying, come to me. Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to have white garments spiritually? Do you want to have your sins washed away? You need Jesus. Do you want your eyes to be open so you can see reality, see spiritual reality? You need Jesus. Do you want to have riches spiritually? Where is that found? In working our way to heaven? No. In Christ. That if we find our riches in what Christ did for us and we're entering into that and that we're receiving His reward by faith, not something we've earned. And that's where we can get riches. So you realize in many ways... What he's saying is, if you really want all these things, first you have to see where you really are. right? If you want to see, you have to realize you're blind. If you want to be rich, you have to realize you're poor. If you want to be clothed, you have to realize you're naked. And all those things are true spiritually. Without Christ, we're spiritually blind. We do the things that we don't want to do. Um, and we just keep on. You know, We're poor. We can't come to God with our good deeds and get to heaven. Um, on campus, a lot of times I'll, I'll talk to people and I'll ask them questions like, you know, how, how are you right with God and things like that. And one of the most common answers I get is basically works. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to church. I'm doing these things. And sometimes I'll ask, you know, follow up questions. And I remember one specific conversation where a person was basically saying like, yeah, I do these good things. Basically, I go to church and and I ask them. So like, when you go to church. Do you, when you get there, like sit and like look at your watch, like, man, I'm really ready to go. Like, I'm, I don't want to be here. I'm bored. I'm ready to get on with my day. And they're like, well, yeah, yeah, I do that. And I was like, and you think God like looks down from heaven and thinks, wow, this person goes to church every week and they hate every moment of it. And wow, they really deserve to go to heaven. And they're like, well, maybe not. (laughs) It's like, it's kind of crazy, really, that if you, if we really reflect on our good deeds, are they really going to get us to heaven? Like, have we been really that good? And we haven't, right? We're all sinners. Um, and we're we're weak spiritually. We're sinners. Um, 
There's sin in our heart. There's sin in our lives. And so we need Christ. We need to realize we're poor so we can go to Him and say, I don't deserve to go to heaven. And I can't earn it. But you promise to give it freely and so I'm going to trust you. So that's the counsel really is to go to Christ. Um, and again, let's. I'm going to try and... I'm moving kind of quickly here, but... Um, Motive. What's his motive? What's Christ's motive? Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. God loves us. Isn't this how we would treat our kids if we love our kids? Do we want our kids, do we want to be a faithful and true witness to our kids? If our kids are um, doing something that's not good, don't we want to tell them? Or do we, do we just lie to them? What if it hurts? What if it hurts? What if it costs, you know, some suffering for them to mature? Well, we want that. Why? Because we love them. And it's the same with Christ. You know, a good way to ruin your kids would be to make sure they never have any difficulty. They never have to do anything difficult. <laughs> right? And God is a good parent. And so here he is. He corrects. He corrects us. And this ties back into our whole overarching one of the overarching themes throughout all these letters is this idea of the victor or the conqueror, the one who conquers, is a person that's repentant. Over and over and over. If we want to be a conqueror, we want to be a victor, uh, again contrasting the Christian with you know, the emperor or Christ with the emperor, the real victor is not someone who in the world overcomes or in the world becomes rich or has this big impact on the world. One big thing that comes up over and over it's just repentance. You want to be a victor in the end? Repent. See your sin and repent. Acknowledge it. You know, the world doesn't look at that and think, wow, that's a really victorious thing. And so then this is, leads to the invitation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him, and he with me. And the one who conquers or to the victor, I will grant or I will gift him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down. With my Father on His throne, He who has an ear, the Spirit hear what He says to, to the churches. This is a great verse. And a lot of times we use this in evangelism. People use this in evangelism. But it's kind of interesting if you really think about the context of this verse. I'm standing at the door knocking. What's going on in this letter? It's, a, it's one of the harshest corrections in the Bible, like sharpest. <laughs> and so when, you, when we say that, it's kind of like, Jesus is standing at the door knocking. Yeah, but what if Jesus opens the door and says, get all this stuff out of here. <laughs> Clean it up, you know, repent. Uh, turn to me. You, Jesus knocks at the door and opens it and says, you're blind, you're poor, you're naked. <laughs> I mean, that's the reality here in this letter. And so the, what does the world say, right? What would the world say if that's the knock? Jesus stands at your door, he knocks, he opens, and he says, hey, I just want you to know you're poor, you're blind, you're naked, but you can see, you can have clothes, come by for me. Many people would just slam the door. It's like, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> That's not love. That's not the kind of love I want. And so that comes back, circles back around to our original question. Do we really want a Lord? Do we really want a faithful and true witness who will tell us the truth even if it hurts? And the reality is that Christ is there. He will commune with you. But He's not going to commune with you like a grandparent that spoils the grandkids, right? It's like, I'm going to leave all the correcting for somebody else and I'm just going to preserve all the fun things for us. That's not how Jesus is. Well, I need to wrap up here, and so I'll just try and summarize. How can we apply this? Well, one, we need Jesus. 
right? We need Jesus and we need to just ask ourselves, do I really want a Lord? And it would honestly be better. The Bible is very clear on this. Actually, Jesus tells a parable about someone who's building and then doesn't think about the cost beforehand. He actually says, you need to think about before you build this tower, you know. And it's the same with us. We ask ourselves, if you want to be a Christian, do you really want a Lord? Because you might think, yeah, I want to be forgiven. I want to know Jesus. But really, if you really think about it, I really don't want him to run my life. I don't really want him to tell me what to do. I don't really want to submit to what he says. I just I just don't want that. And if that's the case, it's better to know that and actually think about that than to live in pretense. Right? Because then you'll at least know, well, I'm not right with God. I'm not really repenting. Um, not only that, do we want this faithful and true witness? When someone corrects us, is it like oil that anoints our head? Is it good? Can we hear it? Um, are we ready to repent? We want to be quick to hear and to repent and to turn. We want to be zealous. Like he says, be zealous and repent. We do want to be useful to him. We want to be zealous. We don't want to be kind of half-hearted. We can be lulled to sleep just like this church, this successful, outwardly successful, and spiritually weak and half-hearted. We don't want to be like that. And so we can just, what do we do? We can ask the Lord for help and we can repent where we see that's true, where we see we're not uh, zealous for him, we're not zealous to repent, where we are just kind of coasting along in comfort. Last thought here. Sometimes the good is the enemy of the great. Right? Is it good to have clothes? Yeah. Is it wrong to have nice clothes? No. Is it good to, um, you know, work hard and be, in in a sense, successful in the, in the world? That's not wrong. But if that is outstripping our love for Christ, that is wrong. And so... We can just ask ourselves, you know, is there any area, is there something that's becoming bigger to me than Jesus, more important? And instead of asking maybe is this right or wrong, there's a lot of things that obviously if there's sin, we want to reject. But we could, there's some things that are permissible but not profitable. And we could ask a question like, does this stir my affections for Jesus or does this rob my affections for Jesus? Because we can get lulled in to things that aren't wrong or aren't sinful. But in the end of the day, they rob our affections for Jesus. You could fill your day with things that aren't sinful and at the end of the day still not have time for Jesus. And that is wrong. And so he's, it's interesting that he's not really calling out a lot of specific sin here like some of these other churches that were you know, committing adultery and things like that. But he's, they ended up in the same place. They ended up far from Christ. One, rejected outright, like I'm just going to do this thing I know is wrong. This one is kind of lulled into it by all these things going on in the culture around them as well as in their own hearts and, 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 and lives. And so we want to ask the Lord to help us. All right, let's pray, and um, I'll let Andy come up here. Father, um, I just pray this would be clear, even though it's kind of a, a little rushed here and uh, we want to know you. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you won't leave us to ourselves. We do want a true and faithful witness. We want you to be our Lord. Even if that's hard, even if it means sacrificing comfort, um, because 
of where you lead us. We want to do what you want us to do. Thank you that you love us and are there to forgive us. Um, we just need help. Pray you protect us. Show us our faults. Um, search our hearts. See if there would be any wicked way in us. And even if there's things that are not sinful but are robbing our affections, um, just show those to us. We're thankful that you hear our prayer, not based on what we've done, but based on your death and resurrection on our behalf. Ask this in your name. Amen.